maximize your influence, your resource for the top persuasion, influence, and negotiation techniques that will help you maximize your success in life and business. And now, here are your hosts, Kurt Mortensen and Steve Olson. Welcome to episode 57 of Maximize Your Influence. I'm Steve Olson. I have Kurt Mortensen here with me as usual, and we have a guest interview today. What do you think about that, Kurt? I think it's good stuff. Bring some new information, a new expert. People can get some new skills. Yeah, and I think it's a topic that people are going to be very curious about. If you've ever had a conversation where it was just totally fake, <laughs> I think you're going to Family, You talked about this. family reunions. Didn't you have one of those when you were fishing this weekend? Were there any fake conversations? Uh, well, you know, my brother was telling me about one. He's a broker for an unnamed place. I don't want to get him in trouble. Okay. <laughs> he's a, he's a stockbroker. And he was telling me about all the, just the corporate BS meetings they have to have and goals and benchmarks and, and just the formality and how everybody just goes through emotion, like the emotions, like a zombie and how it's just so incredibly fake. And he doesn't know if he could take it anymore. He actually gets, believe it or not, this is such a big behemoth organization. His wife's going to have a baby, and I won't be very specific there, but she's going to have one soon, and he gets to take either three months or six months paternity leave. Wow. Paid. I mean... I don't know how a company can function losing somebody for six months, but that's a sweet benefit. That's what I thought. I mean, when my wife has a baby, basically the world says to me, congratulations, your mortgage is due on the first, right? (laughs) (laughs) I've... I took six months out. I think, do they guess they don't really need me? I'm not that important after uh, all. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So I think many of the listeners will appreciate the insight that our guest has on you know, how to deal with that in the business. If you're dealing with employees or your supervisors or your clients, uh, just that uh, fakeness that we all have to deal with. And wow. Yeah. I think sometimes we've got more stomach for it than, than others. That's for sure. Good stuff. Yep. Yep. So because we have a guest coming on, we're going to do things a little bit backwards today. We've got a ninja as well as the geeky article moment. How are you coming on that Steve Urkel soundbite, by the way? All right, here's the sound just for you. Listeners, tell me what you think. <laughs> well, they're going to love that. Yeah, well, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm putting my money on, on something else, but you can put money on the Urkel boy. <laughs> Look, pal, you got to put your money on something. You can't just say something else. <laughs> well, I was going to say the dun-dun-dun, but... <laughs> can, can you imagine going to... The craps table or the roulette table in Las Vegas. And they say, hey, sir, what would you like to do? He said, ah, something else. Put my money on something else. It doesn't work. Yeah. You got to decide. All right. I'll take this one. All right. Fine. But we still need feedback from the listeners. <laughs> yes. Maximize your influence at gmail.com. Very key stuff we're asking for your feedback on. And please nominate ninjas, nominate blunders, or uh, ask us any questions you want to at that email address. We're happy to answer them on the show live. Well, you and I do the show live. People don't necessarily listen to it live. The NSA listens to it live. I feel alive if that counts. Yes. So we are alive while we're doing the live show. That, uh, well, we better be. We better be. Yeah. All right. We'll take a look at our listener stats and (laughs) that would answer the question. So let's go to our geeky article moment, Kurt, about public trust being on the decline. I'm making my best surprise face there. Yeah, this will be one of those, well, duh articles. It's worse than we thought. I've always told people that, hey, it is an all-time low, that 20, 30 years ago, the mindset was, I trust you, give me a reason not to. Now, I don't trust you, give me a reason to trust you. So this is from the famous Association for Psychological Science. They went out and found people that, yeah, it's actually the lowest point in 30 years. And Dr. Twinge of San Diego State University did a lot of the studies 
And she found that part of it has to do with income equality and poverty. A lot of it has to do with politics. She's claiming the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer. That's part of it. That there's this perception that everyone's out there to cheat us or take advantage of us. And I think just in sort of personal note that a lot of that has to do with the media because when there's a special on TV about air conditioning repair people and they look at 20 and one's dishonest, the whole show's about the dishonest one. And of course, everyone thinks they're all dishonest. So the media has to get their blame in this too. A lot of it was with a lot of relationships failing, but they're doing surveys over time and every year it gets lower and lower and lower. And of course, we've done studies before based on occupation. Even with an occupation, we know that Lawyers enjoy a lower trust level than, say, a pharmacist or even a nurse. Well, they did find that young people today are more optimistic, that they're not as distrustful of other people and institutions. So it is something that's learned. But social trends over the last 40 years, there's a huge decline in trust, which is very, very important for persuaders. And here's my message from this is, even though you're a good, trustworthy, honest person, and we know you are because you listen to the show, so I'll put that plug in. That's right. You <laughs> Even though be. you're an influential person, does not mean people trust you. It is something that you have to earn more than ever. It is something that's critical to the persuasion process and something that you have to work on. It's true. You assume going into some kind of a persuasive encounter that you're going to be trusted, that, hey, I'm good, I'm here, I'm here trying to help them, but that's just not how people view it increasingly these days. It is, and it's a sad thing. I want to trust people, but we've all been beat up in business and different situations, and so you have to earn that trust. Now, you can borrow that trust sometimes through social validation or a third party endorsing you, but there's also some things that you can do to really enhance your trust on a personal level. It's critical. If there's no trust, it doesn't matter if you have the best offer, the best deal, the best product, the best service, there's no business. Yeah. That happened to me the other day where I got in that groove of just assuming that people trust me. I was talking to a property seller and I thought the conversation was going pretty well and we're starting to wind it down and I asked them for their email because I needed to send them some stuff pertinent to the conversation that we just had. And they said, ah, I'd rather not give that out. <laughs> I'm thinking, whoa, oh, I missed big time. Yeah, they won't even give me their email. Yeah, that would be a red flag right there. Yeah, yeah. I, I wanted to say to the guy, you think I'm going to put you on some kind of Viagra spam list? What's the problem here? <laughs> what am I going to do with your email? Well, I said, or I could get your social security number. You choose and maybe kind of contrast <laughs> it. We'll see how much distrust there really was. That's called the alternative close, right? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Which we you are going to finish up on objections too, by the way. We're a little detour on our on our podcast today about the fake talk, but we're going to continue going into objections uh, for, I think, two weeks after after we air this one. It's just an FYI to the listeners. A lot of great material on objections. New research is really helping us out. That is correct. That is correct. So why don't you go ahead and cue up the ninja? All right, ninja, let's hear it. So you've got this one, Kurt, an interaction with the uh, O'Brien, a big maker of uh, wakeboarding, water skiing uh, equipment, correct? They do. They make a lot of wakeboards, wakeboard boots, all the materials. And I was out on the lake wakeboarding and trying out a new board. And for some reason, the screws didn't go all the way in. And this, as I jumped off the wake, my whole back boot ripped out of the board, which is not a good thing. And my that ankle still hurts, but that's a whole, that's a whole nother story. Got good air. It was the landing I, I missed when the boot ripped off. But anyway, so I'm looking for these parts because the parts from the boots obviously sunk to the bottom of the lake, and it's not something that you can readily find. And I was just looking around. I tried a few places that 
I could find this, and I'm like, well, I'm just going to go to the manufacturer because I actually bought the boots and the board from a third party. And so I'm like, well, I'll send customer service a little email if, to see because I couldn't find it on their website. They had some other stuff, and nothing would fit what I needed. I said, you know, hey, do you have this? I busted out of the board. This is what I need. And they said, well, Mr. Mortensen, just give us your address. We have some in stock. We'll send you some right now free of charge. <laughs> wow. I'm like, they could have charged me $20, 30 $40. You know, I might have been upset about it, but I needed it. I have to have it. There's no other option. The board's useless without these things. Probably their cost is maybe a buck or two with shipping. But wow, it was refreshing. It was nice. It was they have my loyalty. It was something that was just out of the blue, something they did to really win me over. I say Persuasion Ninja. It didn't cost them much, but man, it's going to last a lifetime. Yeah, yeah. You're going back to them forevermore on, on all those uh, wakeboarding needs, right? Yeah. It, again, it didn't cost them much. It really took me back because I was expecting for them to ream me. Because you know how when you need that nut or that bolt, that little thing, that one little piece to make the thing whole, they always bend you over because they know you have to have them, right? And <laughs> they do and because you have to have it. You have to have that bulb. You have to have that piece. You have to have the one thing for your car. And you know when you buy parts for your car that you're paying 10 times more than you should, but you have to get it. And I felt, wow, I didn't ask for it. They just did it out of the blue, and I really appreciate it. So thumbs up to the O'Brien people in Washington State. That's great, because you're right. They do. They get you. When they know they've got you, they just show no mercy. And you're only going to go back to that person in the future if you absolutely have no choice, because you, you just start looking for other options immediately. I think that's why Radio Shack's out of business. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, because you went there and you needed that one little thing and you're left paying 50 bucks for something. Like, wait a minute, I'm pretty sure you probably make that for two bucks. That's how those stupid Apple replacement parts are. Like a charger for my laptop, like 90 bucks. Yeah, that's where they get you. I love that, well, they got me when I bought it, too. They never stopped getting me. They do. And every once in a while, a little freebie here, there or something they can give. It makes a huge difference yeah. because... Just with anything, if it's all negative, 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 there's no positives, eventually you'll no longer be a customer. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's right. That's right. Well, that's good stuff on O'Brien Boots. Why don't we go ahead and cut to our interview with John R. Stoker, author of Fake Talk. Okay, my pleasure to welcome to the show John R. Stoker, the author of Overcoming Fake Talk, which I know we've all had to do and all have to do a lot. It's his book, Fake Talk, is a practical ways to turn any sensitive, emotional, or confrontational workplace conversation into a positive exchange that benefits all. John, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. That book, I'm looking at it right now. That's something, uh, if I'm in the bookstore, I'm going, hey, I, I want that thing. This Fake Talk is something that people deal with a lot. I appreciate that. I know that when I was looking for a publisher, I had one tell me. Who wants to buy that book? No one wants to be seen writing a, reading a book that says overcoming fake talk. <laughs> yeah, we had that problem with your book, didn't we, Kurt? They've got all kinds of weird suggestions on what it yeah, should be called. Yeah, they keep changing it around. What about this and what about that? And, and I think the thing about fake talk, they know they're doing the fake talk, but they think they're getting away with it. I think we'll probably expose that a little bit today. Yep. So, Kurt, I know we've got a couple of questions for John. Why don't you go ahead and lead off and let's start off the, the most important this. question that the listeners want to know and put John on the spot. What is the worst type of vegetable out there? The worst points? type of vegetable? Yeah, worst type of vegetable. Before we get to the real nitty gritty, we got to know what is the worst. If you could get rid of one vegetable in the whole world, what would it be? Radishes. Radishes. <laughs> oh, we won't go into your childhood experiences and your emotional scars or where that came from, but just interesting for me. It's probably either 
eggplant or well, okra's on the list. Steve, what are you going to weigh in on that? Oh, I got to I got to say celery. I've just never been able to get on board. <laughs> celery? Yeah. But you know what? I've asked a lot of people that question. The number one ever is always going to be Brussels sprouts. I think we can oh. all. Well, anyway. yeah, there you go. There's some fake talk for you, listeners. There's right? some fake talk. The Brussels sprouts. Yeah, I like them a lot. They're really good. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, we got Kurt's, uh, you know, pivotal question out of the way there. I wanted to ask you, John, people are probably wondering, okay, what is it? What is fake talk? How do you define that? Well, I think all of us at some point in time have held conversations, be it with a partner, a spouse, a boss, a direct report, and we think we've handled the issue, and then nothing changes. That in alone tells you that there was something that happened, there was a miscommunication, there wasn't a connection, or you think that if somebody agreed to do something or committed, that that's what would have happened. So fake talk for me are conversations that quite frankly, don't build the relationship, they don't often create respect, and they definitely don't achieve results, whether they're intended to do that or not. So oftentimes we don't find out that we've engaged in fake talk until after the fact. And I think that what happens most frequently, or at least in my life currently where they show up, is with teenagers, (laughs) (laughs) where you think you've handled something and then the lawn just doesn't get cut. Yeah, I can see that with teenagers and studying persuasion and influence. A lot of times you, as managers think they've persuaded or they influenced someone or had a great conversation. Of course, nothing's changed. So absolutely. So let me ask you a question here, John. I think a lot of this fake talk, and tell me if I'm wrong here, comes from people being conflict adverse. They don't want people to get mad. They don't want to argue. And so they kind of beat around the bush. So let me ask you this. Why do you think that so many people are conflict adverse? You know, that's a great question. In fact, I remember Two days before I graduated from law school, I was with my class. There was a hundred, I think it was 122 of us in class. And a professor asked, how many of you will not practice law? And it was over 80. Wow. And he about dropped out of his chair. And so he went around the room and said, what are you going to do? And there were some people who said, I'm going to be a lobbyist. Somebody said, you know, I'm going to be a city manager. One of my classmates wanted to teach elementary school. One was going to practice law, but write wills. I mean, it was kind of interesting. So I I just think that people have an aversion to disagreement. And probably the part of that that's hardest for them is when people get emotional. That when emotion flares, and I'm not talking about a happy kind. I'm talking about (laughs) negative, hot, accusatory. I mean, it just... People get so angry that they either could melt plate metal with a stair or burn a hole in the carpet. And people just don't know what to do with that. And so uh, people are conflict averse. That's been my experience. And so I think there's research that says that 80% of people are, are averse to conflict in some way, shape, or form. So I think it deals a lot with the fact that what they think is going to happen In fact, what's interesting is, you know, we all make observations of a situation. I kind of started to try to look into that. And when I asked people why they didn't talk about what matters most, and you listen carefully, they may say something like this, well, I don't want to hurt their feelings. Mm. And I I thought, now, isn't that interesting? What they're doing is projecting into the future something that's going to happen from the present with no data or facts that it's actually gonna happen. So I'd push a little bit and I'd say, 
well, how do you know that's going to happen? Well, you know, the last time I brought up this topic, they rolled their eyes and walked off and wouldn't talk to me for three days. And then I thought, oh, isn't that interesting? They used their past history, something that happened, could be from their childhood, as the justification for the projection they've made. So, And that's huge. We've seen that in negotiations, too, where emotions are contagious or people are creating the wrong mindset before they go in expecting the worst. And I think as a culture, and tell me if I'm wrong here, especially in the United States, and we have listeners from all over the world, I think we're probably worse than most cultures. Because I know when you go to places like Brazil and, and do trainings down in South America, people are honest. Well, yeah, he's the ugly one, and he's the fat one, and he's the weird one, and he's the one with the big nose. And they know that they're talking about him. And when they do that to America, <laughs> the America gets all upset. They're like, well, you don't know you're fat. You don't know you have a big nose. And to them, it's just mind-boggling that you can't describe somebody that way because it's true. No, I, I'd agree. And I think oftentimes Asian cultures would probably be susceptible to being conflict-diverse. Mm. Um, having been, yeah, I've seen that. Yeah, I've seen uh, that. you know, in Japan a bit in the last little while, I've found that it's kind of, I guess what you just say, it would say rude to disagree or have mm-hmm. a differing opinion. So they may be more likely just to kind of go along. Um, yeah, I see that with trading in Asia. A lot of times they want to ask questions because you're the expert and that would be rude. And that makes it tough to do trading sometimes. Good yep. stuff. Good stuff. Yeah. And you have other cultures too, where in a negotiation, the fight, the struggle is expected. You have to do that. They're the opposite of some of the Japanese culture that you're talking about. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Like That would be anywhere you get off a cruise ship. <laughs> <laughs> right? right you got to come. They're expecting it, right? They yep. want to negotiate. And they're like, oh, dumb American. When they say, oh, okay, I'll take it for 100. Like, I would have sold it to you for 50. Yeah, yeah. Got to ask. Put the money you're willing to pay in one pocket and the rest of your money in the other pocket. There you go. There you go. (laughs) Yeah. Well, John, I've found that when we talk to various authors, there's always something that's maybe happened in their life or something that's just kind of happened over years in the business world that really prompted them to write the book. What made you decide you wanted to write a book about fake talk? To be honest, it it was all the training everybody else was doing that didn't work. (laughs) Okay. I I mean, it's like, it's kind of a little bit of a story, but have you seen the picture of the Vitruvian man? I think there's a picture of him in my book. He was drawn by Leonardo da Vinci. And when you've seen him, he's got a square and a circle that's on the outline of his person in the perimeter. And I was interested one day looking at that thinking, did somebody just add those? So, you know, I went and did a little research and found out that Leonardo da Vinci had actually drawn the square. And he said the square represented the science of the proportions when it comes to the human body. And that the circle uh, represented art, the art form, or looking at the body as an art form. And as I looked at that, I thought, oh, my gosh. He was talking about communication, that there are two parts of communication, the said and the unsaid. So the square represents the words that people use or maybe the process for holding a conversation and the circle represents everything else. So then I started thinking of that study that was done by Albert Moravian where he said when people are talking about their feelings or their attitudes, he said 7% were the words and the other 93% were either nonverbals or tone. And I thought, well, wait a minute, there's more than just tone and nonverbals. How about 
cadence or speed or tempo? How about pauses? How about the assumptions we bring to a conversation or the quality of the relationship in the past or the, the level of trust on a, on a one to 10 scale? Or how about the absence or presence of emotion? Or how about a person's interaction style? I just started thinking there is a whole lot more going on than just right tone and, and nonverbal behavior. And I thought maybe that's the reason we engage in fake talk is because so many of the, the programs or the people that are out there teaching communication are focusing on the 7%. So that's kind of, the I guess, the epiphany I had a number of years ago, maybe eight years ago. And then I started looking at how these other dynamics actually influence the conversation and started playing with them and tinkering and experimenting to see if I can improve the quality of my own conversations and then created a whole bunch of skills and principles around those particular dynamics that would help people to be more effective in the way they communicate with one another. Mm, very, right. very interesting. Well, let me ask you this. And if we look at all the conversations that we avoid or the, the most difficult to hold that we run away from, what is that one conversation that we all run or we all avoid? It's probably the conversation with a partner. You like look, a spouse partner or a business partner or both? Uh, I'm talking about a personal partner in, in some kind of a relationship outside of work. I okay. mean, I think people have a tendency to be guarded at work, and they're probably more, what would you say, conscious, consciously conscious, if they're smart, about what they're saying and what they're not saying. Where at work, sometimes, I think we tend to let, the, let our guard down. I did, you know, as a practicing attorney for number of years and did about, I think it was 200 plus divorces in four year period. And, you know, and I kind of found that a couple's ability to talk openly and honestly and solve problems together was a pretty good indicator of whether or not they were going to stay, stay together or not. And so I just think there are some topics that people who are in relationship, you know, will avoid. And so consequently, the relationship doesn't improve. That would probably be my number one. And then outside of a personal relationship and professional relationships, there's just some conversations that people are afraid to hold. Like no one wants to give. I think the research says that 85% of individual contributors would not give feedback to their boss if they knew, even if they knew their boss had done something that was illegal or that would damage the company. And, you know, you got to say, well, why? Well, obviously the why is, or what? You're going to, there's a possibility you're going to lose your job. And so if that's what people are thinking, then they're not going to run the risk of even going there if they think there is some consequence to them. Yeah, it does. Whether it's a personal relationship or business, those things tend to fester. And that's the strange thing about listening or conversations or communications in general. Most people think they're doing okay. And we know that's one of the main areas that cause divorce or challenges in business. And it's something that we can all definitely work on. Well, and I think you kind of framed it in a way I would frame it a little differently. But I think a lot of us are, unless we're, we're often unconscious or unconsciously unconscious. I had a woman come in once wanting to know if I'd do her divorce. And, you know, I, people would come in and kind of test the water a little bit and ask for advice. You know, you usually would do that for free on a first consultation in on and she was 
she was pretty bruised. And, you know, and here she's trying to test the water. And I say, will you do me a favor? And she goes, sure. I go, go stand in front of that mirror. And she went and stood in front of the mirror in my office. And I said, tell me what your neck looks like. Tell me what those are on your arms. Tell me what's going on with that left eye. You know, and so I'm forcing her to look at herself. And I said, you know, I've got one question for you. How much pain is enough? She looked at me and she goes, well, what do you mean by that? I said, well, what's it going to take? I don't know how long you've been working on this. And I don't know you personally, but is it going to take getting your neck broke? Are you going to get your eye knocked out? Or is it going to, is one of your kids going to get their jaw broken? I, I just said, I, I want you to look at what's going on. Of course, the decision is yours. I just want to know how long you've been in this relationship and how much pain is it going to take? She sat there for quite a while, got a little teary, and then she just said, well, you know what? I go, no, what? She says, the devil I know is better than the devil I don't. And I just said, well, maybe we ought to make some different choices here and see if we can do something about this. But the decision is yours. And so sometimes I think what happens is we just kind of don't stop and take a look, right? Is this business relationship working? Is this job working? Am I getting the results that I want in my life? Is the quality of my current relationship with my companion, friend, or spouse what it really should be or needs to be? And so if we wake up a little bit and kind of take a look at where we're at in terms of results or relationship and respect, maybe it would help us be more aware of where we are and what we're getting, and that would put us in a position to do something that would allow us to make another choice or to work on something so we can improve it. Absolutely. See, you had a real conversation with her, obviously. It made her think about some things that that, uh, she obviously hadn't thought about previously. Whether it's an atmosphere like that, it's business, it's a personal relationship, what are some of the pointers that you find you're constantly giving to people as to how they can create a real conversation with somebody as opposed to a fake one? It starts with being more aware within ourselves of where we are, where we're going, and what we're getting. Because if a person could say, let's say I said, is my relationship with my boss really what I'd like it to be? Do I really enjoy work? Do I find that I'm getting the success that I want? And if I answered no to all those questions, that's quite telling. That all of a sudden means that, you know what, here's an opportunity to do some things differently than maybe I've done in the past. So if a person can't see where they are, it's kind of hard to determine where you want to go if you don't know where you, where you really are. So I would say part of that has to be kind of a, a self-awareness piece. I think another thing is, is that secondly, we're very quick to jump to assumptions about people, to form judgments about people that are not positive. And part of that has to do with the fact that two-thirds of our brain is wired negatively. Let's say I was upset with, with you, Steve. If I could use my own emotion as a cue that I'm thinking something, so I'm upset. Well, whoa, what's that all about? Now I'm going to work on myself a little bit again. I'm upset with Steve because and I'm going to finish that sentence as many times as I can and try to identify the underlying assumptions of the emotion that I may be currently experiencing. If I can do that, then I can challenge those assumptions for accuracy. And one of the ways of doing that is just to be able to say, well, where's the evidence or data for that thinking? And oftentimes I've found that we don't have any. I mean, and we do it 
naturally because of the way the brain's hardwired. In fact, when I wrote the book, the publisher said, we'd really like you to record a little video vignette at the end of every chapter. So if everybody looks at the end of a chapter, it gives a link there where people can go and I tell a story or talk about a principle or a concept that's not in the book. And one of them, we were downstairs recording these, and my spouse came out of a, office, a side office holding the new camera we'd bought in one arm and a roll of paper towels in another. And I looked at her and I said, I certainly hope you didn't use those paper towels to wipe the lens on that new camera. <laughs> and she goes, you want to try that again, buddy? <laughs> And I go, okay, okay, I'm sorry. So I just noticed the data I had, but I had no information whatsoever that she had done what I was assuming that she did. And I think we do that a lot to people. Um, that we make judgments or assumptions that are maybe more a reflection of us than they are of them. And so if there's a way to slow down a little bit and take a look at your thinking before we open our mouth and remove all doubt, maybe we ought to do that a little more, give people the benefit of the doubt, or at least look for the data that created the, the reaction or what we really want to say or what we really feel. I'd, that'd be the second one. And the third one is, is I don't think we ask one another enough questions. Uh, we assume we know what a person's thinking or what they're going to do, and it doesn't even cross our mind to even say, gosh, you know, I ask you to do this. Can you do it? Can you do it tomorrow by four? Is there anything you need from me? Is there something that may get in the way? We just, we're back to the assumptions thing again, but we don't stop and ask. So one of the things I always try to do when I'm coaching somebody or trying to help them solve a communications or a conversation is kind of a challenge is I'll ask a ton of questions because the way people answer will tell me kind of what they're thinking, what they're feeling, and help me to kind of craft an answer or response that's more complete rather than me just assuming that I know what the challenge is. So those would be three I think we could do. And maybe the fourth is, I don't think we listen as much as we think we do. We listen from the perspective of our own agenda. We listen to see whether we agree or disagree. Sometimes I think we listen to be validated in what we've already decided we think rather than really being open and giving our full attention not only mentally, but physically to the person that we're interacting with. So if, you know, I was doing a quick and dirty, I'd probably do those four, right? Mm, that's helpful. Yeah, that's good stuff. So the big picture here, our listeners are always wanting to know how to maximize their influence. Some are entrepreneurs, some are in sales, some are managers, some are CEOs. So big picture, when they're having a conversation with someone, how do they make it more influential to where they can get people to want to do what they want them to do and like doing it? Gosh, you know, I'd have to change that up with each one. But if I just took sales, you know, the old adage, telling ain't selling. I think a good salesman is going to ask a lot of questions, try to understand what's important to the person and where they're coming from. And then they can tailor their presentation to say, wow, you know, I think I've got something that you're absolutely going to love. Because as I heard you, here seem to be three things that I heard you say that are really important to you. Are these three things important? And then you share those three things and they go, yeah, well, here's what I'm going to offer. So, you know, in that case, what you're listening and you're going to ask a lot of questions. Somebody asked me this morning in a, an interview I did uh, who was fairly high up. He said, gosh, from reading your book, I've really realized that I'm not a very good listener. 
He said, how could people, he asked me, how could people learn what's really important to their people? This is kind of maybe for a leader. If you really don't want to know what's important to the people that work for you, you can listen to what they complain about. And what's interesting about that is that what people complain about or blame or, you know, whine about is really underlying that complaint is a positive value. So if I said, if somebody said to me, gosh, John, you're always in such a hurry. You never slow down. I just wish you'd listen to what I got to say on this. Even though they're kind of complaining about my behavior, the positive value in that statement is, is I got something to say and I wish you'd listen. So if I heard somebody that, I, that worked for me say that a couple of times, I know that it's hard for that person to maybe step up and get my attention and that they want to be listened to. That's a value they have, is to be listened to. So when I'm dealing with them, I'm really going to make sure I focus on what they're saying to me. I'm going to ask questions to explore what it is they're really saying or to clarify my own understanding so that when we walk away, they're saying, wow, John gave me his full attention and he is interested in what I think or he wouldn't have asked and listened. So you know, that, that's kind of another tip, I think, that just for every leader, that, that helps people to be more influential. And if you're talking to a lawyer or if I was talking to my team and trying to get them to listen to me, I think evidence and data is huge. If I can say, look, here are the facts. Here are the financials from the last three months. Here's where most people have come into our website and where they click through. Here's where people are buying. I think we ought to do more of that. We're not capitalizing on that information. It's pretty hard for them to offer another, I guess, opinion or a judgment or an alternative unless they have supporting data or substantiation that would help them make that point. So I think that having evidence or data to support a point goes a long way to influencing people. Uh, that's great information, and I'll endorse that too. I think the top three things that all of us need to work on is listening skills, learning how to ask the right questions, and I'll add people skills in that too because we all need to work on that. Great information. Really appreciate your time. Endorse the book. It's really good information. In fact, John, where do you want them to go to get the book? If they went to www.overcomingfaketalk.com, it's kind of a one-page website, and scroll down, there's free chapter there. There may be a link to a self-assessment and they could go obviously click on the links there to several companies, kind of go purchase the book. Uh, that's where I'd go. All right. Good stuff. Yeah. Thanks so much for your time, John. We appreciate having you on the show and uh, let us know when the next one's coming out. We'll get you back on for sure. I appreciate it, guys. Thanks so much. Thank Bye. you. Okay, everybody, thanks again for joining us with our interview with John Stoker. Great interview about fake talk, and I love some of the pointers that he gave. It got me thinking. Made some points about how we just don't listen the way that we think we do, and I spend a lot more time talking at people than I do listening to them. Uh, Kurt, you have any thoughts on the interview with John? Great information, and I think it's the one thing we tend to overlooked that we don't have a challenge with. And based on research, we all know it's something that we can all, like I said, we could all work on it. Yeah. So be sure to go to overcomingfaketalk.com and you can scroll to the bottom, like John said, and uh, get a free chapter, order the book, benefit from the, the great information that he's put together. 
As always, if you have questions for us, comments, questions, insults for Kurt, mm-hmm. email us at maximizeyourinfluence at gmail.com. And we are on Stitcher Radio. We are on iTunes. We are on the Windows Marketplace. Just go to the website, maximizeyourinfluence.com. You can listen directly there, too. So there you have it. Thanks for joining us again. We'll catch you next week on another episode of Maximize Your Influence. See you next week. 